Well, would you please join me in standing out of devotion to God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it's always helpful and even needful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together. So there should be a chairback Bible uh, nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text printed on page 880. Uh, We are rapidly coming to the climax in Luke's Gospel, this Gospel that we've been walking through as a church for the last 15 months as we find Jesus again teaching in the temple on Passion Week. And we come today to what is the shortest text, I think, in all of our studies we've had or will have in Luke's Gospel as we are just looking at four simple verses. Verses twenty, um, Verse 45 in chapter 20 through verse 4 in chapter 21. And so kids, as I, I read this text, see if you can notice a group of people that are mentioned at the end of chapter 20 And that is mentioned again at the beginning of chapter 21. And the hint is we read about this group in our reading of the law. And there's some connection that we want to see, and Lord willing, we'll see in time soon as we see what God is teaching us in this text. But let us now uh, read the text together, and then I'll pray for a time, ask for God's blessing on our study, and we will begin. So let us hear now as Christ speaks to us. And in the hearing of all the people... He said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into an offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to your perfect to your precious, uh, to your holy word this morning, asking that you would speak to us through it. For we know that your word brings life unto us. It is living and active. It is able to rebuke us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, to equip us for training in righteousness. And so we pray that you would do that this morning unto your glory, that we would hear as we must with eagerness and hearts ready to repent and follow you in faith. I do ask that you would help me to preach as I must, with courage and clarity. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 2008, art experts from around the world gathered around an easel in London, scrutinizing a painting that lay in a panel of walnut wood. Their task that day was to discern whether or not the painting they were looking at was indeed the authentic Salvatore Mundi of Leonardo da Vinci, a painting that supposedly was painted in around 1500 and had been lost for well over 400 years. And that began a process that day of six years of intense research, of intense 
inquiry to determine whether or not the painting was authentic to da Vinci. Because you may know in art studies, in art history, in art galleries, finding out whether or not originality is true or a forgery is present before you is of most value. And so after six years of study, everybody that was involved, six years of research, everyone that looked into it decided that this indeed was the long-lost da Vinci masterpiece that everyone had been looking for for centuries. And so it made its first public appearance in Rockefeller Center at a Christie's auction and was very quickly sold for a world record fee of $450 million. Distinguishing between that which is true and that which is false is most valuable. And what we see this morning in our text is Jesus is doing that in two simple scenes. He's going to distinguish between true religion and false religion. But of course, on this topic, it's of eternal value and its consequences are for all eternity. And so we want to hear with eagerness what Jesus has to say because we have two portraits of piety. We have two scenes of spirituality. We have two glances at godliness. One is real and one is fake. And so the simple theme that these verses are meaning to tell us this morning is Jesus' explanation. This is what it's all about. Jesus' explanation about the nature of true devotion. He's going to teach us. He's going to explain to us. He's even going to illustrate before us the nature of true devotion, the kind of devotion that Jesus is looking for in his disciples. And so students, what you want to realize from the outset is Jesus cares how you live in him. The old theologians would use the language of piety. Jesus cares about your piety. Now, you probably haven't used that word, at least not in a good uh, sense anytime soon, but it simply just means how you live according to what you believe. And he cares how you live. Or you might be in here today and, and you're not a Christian and you're just wondering uh, what Jesus expects in the Christian life. Or perhaps you're in here today and you've been burned by Christians or churches in the past and you're now utterly convinced that should you come across anyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ, you're just running into a hypocrite. Uh, well, Jesus has much to say actually on all these things. So kids, did you notice that group of people that is mentioned at the end of chapter 20 and at the beginning of chapter 21? It's this class of widows. Did you see that? The first scene talks about people whose spirituality devours widows, which of course is bad. And then what you get in the beginning of chapter 21, a portrait of true devotion through a devoted widow. And it's quite interesting to know that Luke, out of any author in the New Testament, emphasizes and references widows more than anyone else. Uh, he understands that throughout the Old Testament, one of the simplest ways to tease out the reality of someone's devotion to Yahweh was how they cared for widows. And what Lord willing will see by the end is how striking it is that Jesus uses a poor widow as a, an example, almost a primary example of what it means to truly be devoted to him. So first scene we want to look at today is devotion that Jesus condemns. Secondly, we want to see that a scene in which we find devotion that Jesus commends. So it's fake religion followed by true religion. It's false piety followed by genuine piety. Devotion that Jesus condemns is what comes first. Look how Luke sets the scene in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Now, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks... Uh, we find ourselves still 
on Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus, for quite a long time now, at least in the text of Luke, has been teaching in the temple. And last week, what we saw is the previous 25 verses, Jesus had these three scenes of argument and engagement with religious leaders. It was a conflict that showed us, among other things, Jesus is the true son of David. He's also God's son. He is the one that has come to save sinners, but he's also the king that can't be defeated. You can't corner this king. You can't conquer this king. The Savior is going to have supremacy. The truth will always triumph in the end. And it's as though he is finally getting back to his disciples. For so much of that Tuesday in the temple was dealt with other people, religious leaders and the crowds. And what you need to know in Luke's gospel, this is the last time that he's going to teach and all the people are going to listen. He's addressing his disciples directly, but we know that there are a lot of flies on the wall uh, there in the temple leaning in and listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. So to know this is the last time they're going to hear a kind of large group teaching from Jesus does signal its importance. And it begins, notice, with a command to his disciples in verse 46. Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. Now, beware, it's this interesting word. It originally was used of ships that put into land and that would basically stick themselves at a dock. And it's as though Jesus is saying, and beware of the scribes. He's saying, anchor into your minds what I'm getting ready to say about this group of religious leaders, the scribes. So kids, do you remember who the scribes were? They've showed up often in Luke's gospel. They've already showed up three times before this in just chapter 20 alone. In verse 1, if you glance back to chapter 20, verse 1, they came up with the chief priests and the elders. Came up as a hunting term, so they're hunting after Jesus. And then if you skip down to verse 19, they're trying to lay hands on Jesus to destroy him. But curiously enough, what we saw last week is by verse 39, the scribes are praising Jesus because he's just silenced the Sadducees a group of religious leaders that the scribes didn't get along with. And so here what you have are scribes that were experts in the Old Testament law. They were like the original lawyers in God's covenant community. They taught the law, they defended the law, they applied the law, and they had an enormous amount of religious power and prestige in Jerusalem at this time. Although I don't know if it's exactly a contemporary equivalent, but the closest thing you could find today would be pastors and scholars and seminary teachers. They're the scribes. And Jesus says, watch out for them. But <laughs> don't just watch out at all times, at all of them, but for specific reasons. Because what he's going to do in the next two verses is give four warnings about the scribes and one ruling about the scribe. And the first warning is they love to be the center of attention. Because look at how verse 46 continues. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. I remember watching some documentary once and Deion Sanders of NFL football fame uh, was talking to his children about the need to dress in expensive clothing because he was saying when you look good you feel good and when you feel good you are good. And believe it or not that's actually some sense of fashion that the scribes would have agreed with because they walked around in a long robe. Uh, no poor person could ever afford to walk around in a long robe. They walked around in a long robe. You could see them. You could spot them as distinct. And understand, remember at this time in Jewish culture, to be wealthy and have enough money to wear a robe was a sign of God's pleasure, his blessing upon your life. You were doing something right. 
So wearing long robes just wasn't a, a means for the scribes to get attention to themselves. It was a means that which they could tell the world, hey, we're doing something right. Follow us. Look at how God has, has blessed us. But it's not just their wardrobes that they're interested in. It's welcomes. Look at how verse 46 continues. They also love greetings in the marketplaces. We talked about this actually in chapters past in Luke's gospel, this tendency within the religious leaders of Jesus' day to love these flowery, flattering greetings wherever they went. And one of the most striking ones I've been able to find to kind of illustrate this truth would have been if a rabbi or a scribe walked into a marketplace, he would have been longing, expecting, demanding to hear something like this. Ah, Rabbi Talisar, glorious doctor of the Torah, repository of the wisdom of Solomon, son of Abraham, friend of the righteous, defender of Israel's faith, we greet thee. That's what they're looking for. Uh, they were the kind of religious leader that demanded their followers call them Dr. Dave or Reverend Roger or Pastor Paul. They loved titles. They loved to be the center of attention. So he's warning them. Number one, they love to be the center of attention. Number two, they love the best positions. Look at how verse 46 ends. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. It's quite simple, isn't it? They want the VIP reserved seating at all the major social functions so they stand out as what? Significant and important. Here is a spirituality that's all show and no substance. Now, these are religious leaders whose passion in their ministry is to be what? to be noticed. And of course, we dare not think that such a temptation is not true of our age today. So many people, even pastors, seemingly living their life simply for the likes of social media, or servants in the church pursuing a position of service so that they might be seen as skillful and gifted, wanting the appreciation of the people. Or it is even true, people pursuing office-bearing ministry, elder and deacons, just because they know it brings prominence to their life and maybe their ministry in the church. Here's a group of people that cared more about how they appeared before men than how they appeared before God. That's why Jesus is warning against them. I'm sure many of you may have come across a title of a book that Dale Carnegie published in 1936, maybe even read it before. It's this kind of perennial bestseller still today, international phenomenon of sorts, How to Win Friends and influence people. And what you need to know about Jesus, whenever he speaks specifically to the religious leaders, he's never trying to win friends and influence people. Because his third warning points at the depth of the rot that's in their heart. Because he says they devour the weak with their ambition. Notice what he says in verse 47. They devour widows' houses. We don't know exactly how the scribes were doing this, at least the scribes Jesus is referencing here, because there's a couple of different ways they could have done this. This is Jesus basically saying they're stealing money from widows. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say there's something like a first century equivalent of modern day televangelists that tell uh, poor widows to give a seed to the ministry because scribes couldn't be paid. They were basically generating their income on donations. So, so give a Sow a seed with our ministry, and then you're going to be able to reap a bounty in response. But not just that. Here's also how they could have done it. They could have accepted legal fees, 
even though such fees weren't allowed to be taken. Uh, They could have acted as legal trustees, cheating the widows out of their estates. They could have managed the property of widows who decided to devote themselves to service in the temple. And what's immediately coming next might be true, at least what's immediately coming in verse 47. They could have accepted payment for long prayers of intercession. They even had the power to foreclose on houses that had been pledged against loans that were impossible to pay. So this is a group of spiritual leaders in Israel that is consuming. This word devour, it actually is painting the picture, kids, if you can think of a predatory animal ferociously eating its prey. That's what that word means. They are devouring the weak with their ambition. And the fourth warning is that they're full of pretension. Do you see what Jesus says as he continues? For a pretense, they make long prayers. Uh, We know this even in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, that the religious leaders of the day, these kind of original fundamentalists, they wanted to pray long, they wanted to pray loud so that people would notice them and appreciate their devotion. But there was no sincerity, there was no genuine heart behind it. They were praying for the the appearance of men, the approval of men, more than the attention of God. And so these four warnings, Jesus says, watch out. Anchor it in your minds. Do not be like the scribes. Do not follow the scribes, for this is what is in their heart truly. And if you wanted to know how grave such an error is, look at the ruling, the judgment Jesus gives at the end of verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation which is, of course, striking because he doesn't say they will receive condemnation. What does he say? They will receive the greater condemnation. It's a forgotten truth that Jesus often emphasizes in the Gospels that, yes, there is a hell for sinners, for those who reject him. But there are degrees of judgment in that place of judgment. And what you'll find over and over in the Bible is the hottest places in hell are reserved for hypocritical religious leaders. Should you be a leader? Should you be longing to be a leader? Understand this warning. That's why even James in James chapter 3 says, not many of you should assume to be what? Teachers. Because you'll be judged all the more strictly. They are leading people astray, supposed to be shepherds of the flock. Their piety is nothing more than a forgery. Don't pay attention to it. Here's devotion that Jesus condemns. And next, he moves into verse 1 of chapter 21 with devotion that he commends. And Cyril of Alexandria, who is a a well-known church father in centuries past, was once preaching on this passage in Luke chapter 21, and he said, here is truth that will irritate the rich. And I suppose that's still true today that it has the tendency to irritate the rich. But I hope this morning that what you'll see is I think what Jesus is after here, encouragement about the nature of of true devotion, what it is that pleases Jesus Christ. So you want to picture the scene. Jesus is here in the temple. Mark's gospel fills it out a little bit and tells us that Jesus is going and sitting down on a bench across the way from the treasury. It's late in the day on Tuesday of Passion Week. He's just dealt with all of these religious leaders and their arguments, their tricks, and their traps. And as he's sitting there in the temple, I at least wonder what emotion was written across his face as he's just kind of looking out along the way, listening to all these coins falling into the coffers. Was it exhaustion because of all of the tussling in his teaching that he had just endured? Or maybe 
It was sadness, because we do know from previous parts of Luke's gospel that just a few days before, he wailed out loud at the unbelief of Jerusalem. Rejection and unbelief that was so manifestly displayed there on that Tuesday. Or maybe what he was doing, as it seems like he so often does, was, was looking with intent and with purpose, wanting to know if he could see something that would illustrate truth about life in the kingdom. And we know that he soon sees something, because look at verses 1 and 2. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. So inside the inner court of the temple, there was the court of women. It was as far as women were allowed to go to worship. Children were allowed to be there. And it was adjacent to what was at the time the temple treasury. Because the temple at this time in Jesus' day wasn't just simply the place of religious worship. It was also like this massive bank. And so when the treasury had 13 offering boxes is what they were. And you had this kind of inverted trumpet that you cast your coins into kind of the big circle and just worked its way down into the box. And uh, it was such a tourist attraction of sorts that the religious leaders had set up benches across the way and people would just kind of sit at the benches and watch the action going on in the offerings because there was actually a fair amount to watch because of course there's no paper currency at that time. So how does Jesus know the rich people are putting in money? Well, maybe it's their clothing, but more likely it is he just can hear how many coins are going down into each box. Someone brings a couple. Someone brings... A couple dozen, then someone shows up and it's like hundreds of coins pouring into the offering box. And what would happen at that time in the treasury is everybody just looks that way. But Jesus sees someone else. Did you notice that? A poor widow giving two small copper coins. Now here's what you want to know about the copper coins. Called lepta at the time and they were the equivalent of 164th of a denarius. Now that won't mean much to you until I tell you that one denarius was one day's wage. So what she has just put in to the offering box is essentially the equivalent of about four or five minutes worth of work. And Jesus, look what he says in verse 3 to his disciples. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. You would think that at least some of the disciples said, wait, hold on a minute. We heard all those coins clinking over there in that box. And you're telling us that just these two small copper coins are more than that? Well, what does he mean? Notice verse 4. For they all contributed out of the, their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So kids, it'd be like you coming to the offering today and bringing two pennies. And yet that's the only two pennies you own. And you have no hope of getting two more pennies. And even if you did, you know, you can't buy anything with the two pennies because they're not worth anything. And yet Jesus says, here is picture of true devotion, of genuine spirituality, a complete trust in Yahweh that gives everything, knowing that the Lord will still provide. So, of course, in Christ's economy, he's not counting actually how much is given, but how much is sacrificed. He's not counting how much is given. He's weighing the cost of that sacrifice. And it would be striking to his original audience to know that he's holding up this poor widow as a model of genuine piety. Because in a Jewish person's mind at this time, this woman had three strikes against her. She was poor, she was a woman, and she was unmarried. And for a Jewish mind, that was a three strikes that led to some sort of a spiritual strikeout. It was proof that God was disciplining her. 
that she had done some sin in the past that deserved all of this. Yeah, Jesus says, no, the opposite is actually the case. She's hit the spiritual grand slam. You want to know what true godliness looks like? Pay attention to a poor widow that gives God everything because she trusts him enough to take care of her. Yeah, you might hear all these coins going into other boxes, but they still got all kinds of money left over on which they can rely, but she has nothing. Here's a picture of devotion that Jesus commends. And some of you know that I've spent... I think it's probably seven or eight years now uh, studying this 19th century Presbyterian pastor named Robert Murray McShane. And I told someone this week, I think I've got another five years left of detailed study before I may move on to another person. And part of the reason I initially began to study McShane is because he was famous for his holiness. He still is today something of a synonym in church history and ministerial studies. He's a synonym for personal piety and ministerial godliness. And I just wanted to figure out what was fueling all of that, what it exactly looked like. And one of his close friends, if not his closest friend, was a guy named Andrew Bonar. And he published a biography the year McShane died in 1843. It's a biography that's never gone out of print. Uh, That's how popular his example still is. But along the way, when uh, Bonar's remarking on his friend's devotion to God, he kind of gave this editorial side comment that I have never forgotten about and that does very much apply uh, to this text. He said, it's a subtle and dangerous snare to be famed for holiness. The fame of being a godly man is a great snare, as great a snare as the fame of being learned or eloquent. It's possible to attend with scrupulous anxiety even to secret habits of devotion in order to get a name for holiness. And the reason it applies to today's text is because Jesus says, watch out for the scribes who are trying to get a name for holiness. Watch out for the scribes. Watch out for church leaders who are using God's truth to establish a reputation as uniquely devoted to the Lord and recognize that in reality, There is nothing but sin driving the entire enterprise. And so as he kind of gives this one last warning that the crowds are listening to, crowds that would have continued to follow these scribes, he says, watch out. And instead, look to this widow. Don't pay attention to those who devour the widows. Look to the widow who's devoted utterly to the Lord. So as I said earlier, Jesus cares. And maybe we need to remember this sometimes. Jesus genuinely cares about the growth of godliness in his people. Jesus genuinely cares about the degree and quality of his disciples' spirituality. So as we begin to close, I just want to bring out three more things from this text, maybe final exhortations as we conclude this very brief study into what is a a wonderful little passage of truth. The first thing to never forget is that Jesus sees through hypocrisy. It's always a pitfall, I think, of hypocrites because they fooled other people. They forget that they can't fool the king that he sees right through it, that the one, very ones that they are living for, affirmation and approval of, they may not be able to see the truth, but Jesus sees through the mask of devotion that is just hiding sin at heart. And so maybe you have tried to go about this enterprise of fooling people about how much you are genuinely devoted to the Lord. Uh, hear the warning that is even within our text. You can't fool Jesus. He knows. He sees right through it. So, of course, use that as a positive exhortation. If the Lord knows it and sees right through it, 
Why not then in the language of 1 John chapter 1, walk in the light with God's people that you might be known and cared for and helped to grow in Christ as you must. So he sees through hypocrisy. Number two, he's looking for sincerity and humility in his leaders. The initial strike of the warning against the scribes is against religious leaders. Therefore, I think the initial application ought to be today to church leaders. Jesus is after faithful shepherds. Jesus is after humble servants, not those who try to build a ministry that is not true to who they really are. They are those people that pray long prayers in order to impress the members. They're those people that try to nurture purity and piety all the while behind the scenes they're cultivating some sort of fleshly, sinful lust. Or those church leaders that are trying to accrue unto themselves followers when in reality God wants servants who are sincere, who are humble. And so as we talked earlier in the service, at the beginning during the announcements time, those of you who are members here at Redeemer, uh, you have an opportunity this month to nominate men to serve as an elder or a deacon here. As you maybe are praying through this week, who you might nominate, final examinations, if you will, before you fill out the form. Have these categories in mind? Is he sincere? And is he humble before the Lord? Because certainly church leadership is more than that. But let us always remember, it's never less than that. He sees through hypocrisy. He's looking for sincerity and humility in his leaders. And finally, he demands complete loyalty. It is the claim of the king upon his citizens and his kingdom. He demands everything from them. And the reason we know that is look at the end of verse 4, once again in chapter 21. He says, she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The Greek more literally says, she gave her life. This is why she's the model of sincere godliness. It's not the money, as much as people might turn to this passage as a, as a text for financial giving and sacrificial tithing in the church, which may be a faithful application. The point in Jesus' mind is, do you want to know what radical discipleship that surrenders all to Jesus looks like? Look at the widow who gave her life, illustrated in a temple with these two small copper coins. So it's a reminder for those who follow Jesus, every minute of the day belongs to Him. Every desire of the soul submits to Him. Every passion of the heart belongs to Him. He doesn't want part of it. He doesn't want half of it. He doesn't even claim most of it. If anyone would come and follow after Him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me in utter, complete loyalty. So you have a picture, don't you? You have a picture of godliness that's fake. It's a picture of piety that Jesus condemns. These men who devour widows. Then he singles out this devoted widow and says, no, this is what it really looks like. This is devotion that I commend. A complete, total, joyful, humble sacrifice in reliance on the Lord. And understand how Jesus haunts these pages, not just in his instruction, but in his example as well. While the scribes are looking to wear long robes so that people will notice them, Jesus came and took the form of a servant. The Bible says, and he had no form or loveliness that we would ever want to look at him and think him unique. While they're busy jockeying for the best places at the tables and the banquets, reserved VIP sitting, what is Jesus doing? Leaving the Father's right hand at the heavenly feast to be born of a woman that he might live in perfect obedience here on earth, the life that we are supposed to live. While they, of course, are devouring widows' houses, Jesus comes for the weak, for the forgotten, the lowly, 
and the needy. He comes to surrender everything. So therefore, doesn't it make sense that the picture of true devotion for Jesus Christ is nothing less than the joyful surrender of all things to Him? So I wonder, which picture mirrors you best? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has loved us with a love that we cannot fully comprehend. Yet he has shown us his mercy and grace by dying in our place on the cross, surrendering and sacrificing his very life that we might know forgiveness of sins and life everlasting in your presence. So help us, we pray, to be a people that understand that your Son cares about our life, cares about how we live. Help us, we pray, to be a people that do indeed model, that do indeed thrive and find our deepest delight in humble and total reliance upon you. So we pray for those in the room today who may be struggling on these ends, even feel convicted of the truth that they have just heard. Would you build us up in Christ and nourish us by the Spirit, reminding us that his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.